the rise of BOSSWARE, death by a thousand IoT guidelines, and CCPA goes into effect. Now what? These stories and more in this week's ISMG Security Report. Hello, I'm Nick Holland. The cybersecurity industry is rife with types of wear. We have hardware, software, malware, ransomware, and vaporware, just to name a few. Most recent of these is BOSSWARE, which according to the Electronic Frontier Foundation, pertains to software that is used in the workplace to monitor employee productivity. These run the gamut from collaboration tools to somewhat creepier and more intrusive applications that have privacy implications for the employee. With more on this story, here's ISMG's Executive Editor of Data Breach Today in Europe, Matthew Schwartz. As COVID-19 has driven more people to have to work from home, interest in tools for monitoring how employees spend their work time has surged. What are employee monitoring tools? They include relatively light touch options that can try and track productivity by looking at how much time employees spend using work software. Such capabilities may already be built into software that companies are using, such as Office 365. On the more big brother end of the surveillance spectrum, however, some software can do much more, such as recording audio and video of users, logging keystrokes, using optical character recognition to record any text that appears on a screen, and also monitoring email, chat discussions, and social media posts, among other capabilities. Electronic Frontier Foundation, a digital rights group, collectively refers to all workplace monitoring tools as bossware and says they can pose a fundamental risk to workers' security and privacy. Is such employee monitoring legal? In the United States, the answer is generally yes, provided employees know they might be monitored. In addition, in some sectors, such as financial services, some degree of monitoring is required by industry regulations. Other countries have different rules. In Europe, for example, thanks in part to the General Data Protection Regulation, GDPR, organizations need to be very, very careful. For starters, they must document any monitoring, including what data is being collected and how it is being stored and protected via a written data impact assessment. They must also set clear policies and share these with employees. Above all, they must be transparent. If I'm going to monitor your access to your work network, I have to tell you that. I have to be open with you. And that's one of the sort of fundamental principles of GDPR. And some organizations aren't getting that right. That's attorney Jonathan Armstrong with Quartery in London. With the pandemic continuing, he says there are some wrinkles that organizations are still working through. That includes needing to review all of their cybersecurity and privacy policies and procedures, and potentially to rethink them in terms of not only current work-from-home requirements, but also future return-to-work plans and monitoring systems. Of course, what organizations can do in terms of monitoring and what they should do is in part up to individual organizations and their cultures. Whatever approach they choose, Armstrong says that so far during the pandemic, it's paid to have a light touch. But as the pandemic continues, he says organizations are going to have to ensure 
greater compliance, not least with their cybersecurity policies, to ensure that work-from-home users are staying safe and keeping their systems patched. Oftentimes, organizations have turned a blind eye to things. Just to give you one example, I know of a CISO who detected a lot of access on a BYOD on an individual's own device when he'd got a company-issued device. So they say to him, you know, what's up? Is your device broken? No, no, no. My device is quicker than our one at home. And my wife's got a really demanding job. So she's got the company issued device. And so to start off with, people were giving leniency and they were thinking, well, they're homeschooling. They've got all sorts of issues going on at home. But I think that give and take has to be reduced eventually. And particularly because, of course, some bad guys are exploiting those vulnerabilities. We know that gangs are looking out for devices that haven't hit the network, so haven't been patched for three months. We know that the bad guys are looking out for BYOD when we might have lowered our defenses somewhat. We know that they're looking for vulnerabilities in home Wi-Fi connections. So every organization has to review their risks against that new risk matrix, if you like. As the pandemic continues, no doubt that risk matrix will continue to evolve. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Matthew Schwartz. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. Concern over security risks posed by connected devices has prompted widespread efforts by standards bodies, governments and industry groups to create guidelines for best practices. The problem being, there are now over a thousand of these, according to researchers at Carleton University in Canada. So just what does best practice mean in this industry? With more on the story, here's ISMG's Managing Editor of Security and Technology, Jeremy Kirk. Over the last few years, academics, governments, and standards bodies have published best practices for building IoT devices. The result so far has been more guidelines and documents than anyone could reasonably ingest. In fact, academics from Carleton University's Computer Science Department in Ottawa have so far counted 1,014. But what does the best practice actually mean, and are these guidelines helping their intended audiences? Christopher Bellman is a computer science doctoral student at Carleton. He and his advisor, Paul C. Van Orschott, a professor of computer science, examined the documents. They noticed some issues. First is that the terms best practices, recommendations, requirements, and guidelines were often conflated and used interchangeably. The mixed wording sometimes makes it unclear whether the documents are setting baseline security practices, requirements, or, as their academic paper put it humorously, simply offering advice about good principles to think about in the shower. Bellman tells me that wording is important. The the wording we use, it is important because these things have different meaning and we're using them interchangeably. So there's a lot of confusion and ambiguity of exactly what we mean um, with regards to what we want done with security. Mm -hmm. So I think that's sort of the root of a lot of these problems. Also, they noticed that the recommendations often focused on outcomes, such as passwords should be stored securely, rather than how to secure passwords, which is actionable. In their study of the guidelines, 91% of them did not have explicit practices to be followed, but rather desired outcomes. 
There's a reason that guidelines may be written in vague ways. Technology changes and views over how to securely do some action evolve as threats change. But Bellman argues there is a danger in creating guidelines that are too open for interpretation. Christopher Bellman again. But the problem that I personally see with that is, yes, we can leave it open. But if everyone's doing it differently, some people might not be doing it very well. Some people may be doing it better. If we can standardize sort of how we're doing our security across a large group and come to consensus within that group, chances are we're going to have better outcomes. As part of the study, Bellman and Van Orschott looked at the UK's Code of Practice for Consumer IoT Security. The Code of Practice has 13 main guidelines that are outcome-focused and intended for manufacturers, retailers, and developers. Bellman and Van Orschott rewrote the guidelines to make them more specific. So rather than no default passwords, they suggest if passwords are used, pre-configure with a per-device unique password rather than a default or no password. In another example, rather than keep software updated, the researchers suggest this wording, automate and secure the supply and installation of security updates for software or firmware. The reason is that IoT and connected device manufacturers need to get on board. With the exception of the U.S. states of Oregon and California, there are virtually no laws that mandate that IoT devices meet some security requirement either during manufacturing or before sale. Some 70% of the guidelines and recommendations analyzed by Bellman and Van Orschott can only be implemented by manufacturers. That puts the onus on those developers to get it right from the start. If connected device security is going to improve, it will need those manufacturers to understand what they need to do. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Jeremy Kirk. Despite some calls for its delay due to the COVID-19 pandemic, at the start of this month, the California Consumer Privacy Act went into effect. Director of ISMG Productions Anne Delaney spoke this week with Sadia Mirza, a cybersecurity attorney at Troutman Pepper, and discussed updates to the Act's enforcement and what security professionals should expect over the next few months. In this part of the conversation, Anna asks how CCPA changes the information security landscape. Here's Sadia's response. The CCPA, it's not really an information security statute. And, um, and it's not a data breach statute. And what I mean by that is California has a separate data breach law, which tells you, um, you know, in the event of certain information being compromised, then a breach has occurred. And it tells you your notification obligation. Um, California also has a separate law, their information security statute that says um, certain businesses that own or maintain personal information um, need to implement reasonable security procedures. And within both that data breach law and the information security statute, there's um, personal information is defined differently than it is under the CCPA. So what the CCPA does not do, it, it doesn't change what qualifies as a data breach in California. And it doesn't change, um, you know, the standard, the standard for, you know, security procedures or what types of personal information needs to be um, protected. That's, it, it doesn't do that. It's, it's a privacy statute that's really aimed at giving consumers more rights over their personal information. Uh, but with that said, and what I'm sure everyone is thinking right now is about the data breach, the statutory damages under the CCPA. So the one component that the CCPA does, which I think increases the risk of data breach litigation, is that it's created new statutory damages um, for um, consumers in the event of certain data breaches. So specifically what it does, it says if a business fails to maintain reasonable security procedures, um, again, and that obligation comes from California's information security statute, 
um, and a breach occurs, then a consumer can um, initiate a private right of action and seek statutory damages. Uh, but prior to doing that, the consumer has to give the business notice of the alleged violation, which here would arguably be the failure to implement reasonable security procedures. And then you have to give the business 30 days um, cure period. Within that 30 day cure period, if um, the business is able to cure the breach, then the statutory damages are not going to be available. And so, um, you know, this leads us to the million dollar question that I think everyone asks is, well, what the heck qualifies? Um, how do you cure a breach? And I know you and Anna were kind of discussing this a little bit beforehand, and I know this is where this conversation was going, so I'm just gonna jump right into it and talk <laughs> and tell you, you know, um, you know, you and Anna discussed in terms of the draft regulation and the proposed regulations, there was no clarity on um, what qualifies as a cure. Um, and that's been another, in addition to, I think these are the big topics, like what, what is a sale of personal information? That was a very uh, topic that businesses wanted clarity on. And how do you cure a breach? And that's not, um, we didn't really get that out of the draft regulations, but I'll give you, um, I'll give you our take on it. Um, I think for businesses, and you know, we talk a lot about this at other ISMG conferences and the importance of advanced preparation and having an incident response plan and really having, um, uh, you know, looking at uh, like the holistic response is important. And I think that comes into play here with the CCPA. Um, I think that in terms of curing a breach, um, the first thing that comes to my mind is the alleged violation you're supposed to be curing is the failure to implement reasonable security procedures, right? And so part of your cure needs to be, you know, some kind of, um, you know, um, remedying the vulnerability, whatever, you know, fixing, fixing the issue, you know, create, um, and so that's part of it. Again, if you don't think that, if you think reasonable security procedures were already in place though, um, and you, knew you had reasonable security procedures, of course your response and everything you knew, you, you know, respond back and your actions need to indicate that. But um, if there's room for improvement, then, you know, you look to, you know, first address the vulnerability. That's part of your response. Um, but I think that alone probably isn't going to be sufficient. I think um, a lot of factors will come into play here. Again, um, how quickly do you notify consumers? That's going to come into play in terms of curing a breach. Um, depending on what information was compromised, have you offered credit monitoring? Um, have you, um, you know, what types of information was compromised? Um, what are you teaching consumers about how to prevent identity theft? So what are you stating in your, in your data breach letters? I think so all of these various things are going to come into play to, into curing a breach and there's not, there's not unfortunately no single one answer as to look, do this step and you know, the breach will be cured. It'll really be, um, you'll have to take a, take a look at your response function in its entirety to figure out what's gonna, you know, what, how can we cure this. That's it for this week's ISMG Security Report. Theme music is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Nick Holland. Catch you next time.